Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, Mubi. I get Mubi on my Apple TV. I fired it up last night and saw they had uh, Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Circle Rouge, which I remember watching when I was about 22 years old at Film Forum. You don't need to go to Film Forum anymore. You can bring it to your house. Each day they add a new movie. It's up there for 30 days. It's curated online cinema. It's like a film festival at home. Plus, you don't have to wade through all the millions of options. It's only great stuff. So try Mubi for free for 30 days at mubi.com slash longform. Again, mubi.com slash longform. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform. Hey. Hey, you guys. Aaron, I, I remain impressed with your commitment to bicycling to the studio. It's, uh, it's actually the fastest way for me to get here. And I usually wait till it's my only option. Although I did uh, on today uh, say to my wife, maybe I'll run there. And she just started laughing. (laughs) I was at Aaron's house on Friday and uh, he was like, I think I'm going to go work out. And 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 did the same. She had the same response. Yeah. Aaron has a small child. He's not hitting the gym right now. Uh, who's on the show this week? Uh, this week I talked to Liliana Segura. She is a staff writer at the Intercept. Currently, previous to that, she was both an editor and a writer at The Nation. She covers criminal justice. She writes a lot about the prison system, race as related to criminal justice and the prison system as well. There are two stories in particular that really kind of turned me on to her work. She and wrote that prison rodeo story, right? She wrote the prison rodeo story. Yeah, yeah that, that was, was a... that was on our best of the year a few years back. Yeah. Yep, she's got a lot of stuff up on long form. There are two sort of recent stories that kind of uh, got my attention this year. Um, one of which she just won a very big journalism award for. Um, and I'll tell you about them in brief, just because we dive right into them. One is they're both for the Intercept. One is about a guy named Barry Jones who was accused in Arizona of murdering a four-year-old girl. He was put on death row for that. The other one is about a woman named Angela Garcia in Cleveland who was accused and convicted of setting fire to her own home in order to kill her children. So as you can see, some very dark uh, material, but these are also incredibly... Just the degree of difficulty on these stories is incredibly high. Uh, she has a long background in doing these stories at The Nation and other places before, and it was really interesting to talk to her how that all developed. If you're not getting the uh, long-form newsletter, you really ought to be. We send out the best uh, picks from the whole week uh, from longform.org, but uh, we wouldn't be able to do it without MailChimp. They're the ones who really send it out. Max is simply the vessel for them. And uh, they're also the sponsor of the show. We appreciate uh, everything they do for this show. They've been with us uh, since early on. We're, what number are we at? We're pushing 300 here, right? Uh, this is 280. Okay. 280 episodes brought to you by MailChimp. 
I also need to, if we're going to talk about the long form newsletter, which you should subscribe to, yeah. it is like the, the best stories of the week, comes out on Saturday morning. And uh, it's a very uh, anxiety producing moment for me when I hit send on the newsletter. I'm yeah. always convinced there's like a typo. I've, I, I know. Sometimes few, there is. A few times <laughs> I've sent you, I know that I, Thanks, sending, guys. <laughs> sending out a newsletter typo is like a, that's like, that's the rock bottom for you. That Here, is, that's as low as Max goes. It's not a good it, moment. It brings you down. Yeah. Oh, it'll, it'll, it'll mess up my whole weekend. It'll, it'll take, take you down for days. <laughs> but MailChimp did this great thing. They, they, uh, they put in like one more step when you hit send now that just like, chill out, man. You want to- Oh, it gives you like the Gmail undo, but for your for, it's just, for the 10,000 people you're sending to? It's not exactly undo, but it's just like, hey Seriously? man, take a breath, guy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, thanks, Mailchimp. Yeah. Uh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, uh, here is Evan with Liliana Segura. Liliana, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, you're in town from Nashville. Yes. I did, when I emailed you, I didn't realize that you lived in Nashville. Is that a lifestyle thing or a, a work-related? It's a, it's a lifestyle thing, increasingly becoming a work-related thing in that it's kind of opened up a wonderful new set of uh, stories, you know, even just sort of geographically. Um, I'm yeah. really enjoying sort of exploring that. But yeah, I've lived in Nashville for just over two and a half years, which is kind of amazing to think about because I come back to New York frequently and it, it takes very little time for me to kind of swing back into the routine here. I lived here for 16 years. So I moved to Nashville basically because my now husband uh, was there and we were doing the long distance thing and, you know, rent was expensive and I sort of uh, realized that if we were going to be together, one of us is going to have to relocate and that ended up being me. Um but I enjoy it a lot, and it's been a very healthy thing to sort of get out of New York after so much time here and get to know, yeah, totally different place. The South is a totally different context, obviously. So where do you? So I grew up in Atlanta, and I at one point spent a lot of time in Nashville. So that leads me to wonder, where do you stand on hot chicken? <laughs> I st- so I don't eat chicken. So oh. so for me. I'm very loyal to Bolton's, which is the place where I can get hot fish. They, unlike most hot chicken joints, have hot fish, and it's in my neighborhood, and they do a great job, and I love it. So I love spice. Is um, it the Bolton's? So I was obsessed with hot chicken when I lived there. Uh-huh. I never thought of it as uh, there's not a great pescatarian option generally for mm-hmm. hot chicken, but it's like um, the one that's just like a concrete bunker. Pretty much. And it <laughs> Pretty has much. like a red roof. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. They've expanded. <laughs> but but Anthony Bourdain went to Bolton's when he did his Nashville episode in the past couple of years. Oh. Um, so I haven't been back since. I don't know if it's now. Uh, it's just tourists now. <laughs> yeah, probably. I liked it before it was popular. So you mentioned the stories that it opens up for you. And I came to your work through your Intercept uh, work really over the last year and a half or two years particularly uh, these two very long stories, criminal justice stories about wrongful conviction, basically. And I'm curious if living in Nashville, do you feel like you have a greater window into those stories? Because the South has a, let's say, a glut of those type of situations. Yeah, yeah. So it's played out in a few different ways. I guess the primary thing is that just sort of part of my fascination with now being in the South and being in Tennessee specifically, which borders on so many different states, I just feel like I'm so close to so many things and I can just kind of pick up and go go somewhere, you know, be sort of physically present where the thing is happening that I used to sort of pay attention to but didn't have much access to. And so, for example, last year I did a number of trips to uh, Arkansas because Arkansas 
the governor decided that he was going to execute a whole bunch of people. and um, In a short window of time. In a very short window of time. And so I ended up going about three different times. And the first time it was very spontaneous. You know, I was like, I can do this drive. It's not that far, you know. And so that's been, I mean, these are obviously very dark tarp- topics, but I there's a sort of... I really enjoy the fact that I can just kind of pick up and go because I think being present in those spaces is really critical to understanding the systems that I cover. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, I want to talk a little bit later about sort of how you got into this position of being able to do those type of stories in your background. But just in terms of finding stories, so you've talked about just picking up and going and these deeper narratives, you've done a lot of deeper narratives around either capital punishment or just criminal justice and incarceration. And when I was thinking about it, in some ways, it's like to find a story like that, it feels like it's sort of a target rich environment. Like there's innocence projects all over the place. There's so many unfortunate cases. But then in another way, I'm curious how you pick which ones you really want to spend the months, it seems like months on, because in some ways, these stories can all sound the same in a very sad way. They have all the same elements to them. And I'm curious, in particular, these two that I want to talk about, like, how do you go about finding that? Well, so the the last story that I wrote, the Arizona, the story about this man named Barry Jones, mm-hmm. um, that <laughs> is a story that ideally I would have taken months and months to do. But in fact, you know, sort of compared to other stories I've written, I wrote it much more quickly than I would have liked. Mm. I, I And that story came about in a way that I think a lot of us end up finding stories, those of us who have sort of made a name for ourselves and kind of going deep and sort of unpacking a, a wrongful conviction, right? So... So what happened there was that a lawyer out there in Arizona wrote to me and said, hey, there's this evidentiary hearing coming up in this case. It hasn't really gotten any press attention. You know, would this be of interest? And he kind of gave me some of the basics. And so I tend to always say yes, (laughs) because I just, yeah, I'm always interested. And so I said, sure, you know, maybe send me some of the information. And next thing I know, I'm receiving a FedEx of something like, I don't know, nine DVDs and each DVD it's practically the full record in this case. Um, so these are DVDs of documents? Of documents. And it's two trial transcripts. It's police records. It's This is a case dating back to the mid-90s. So it's sort of almost everything that has happened since. And it was just completely overwhelming. Um, but it was also very exciting because I have now the autopsy records. I have every last thing I would need, you know, that oftentimes are so hard to come by. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once I was in that position... Because the hook was the evidentiary hearing that was coming up, and ideally I would write something in advance of that evidentiary hearing, I had to work pretty quickly um, to just start to go through all those materials. And, you know, I obsessively read everything I can anyway. And so I read the trial transcripts, I read the police reports, I took notes. and But I wasn't able to start that until I had, you know, at the time I had other things on my desk. I was working on different projects. So I, I had those DVDs just sort of sitting there. <laughs> on my desk and they were stressing me out because I'm like, I am never going to get through all of this. But eventually I did. And then I decided I had to go to Tucson because it was not realistic to write about this case without going at least once. But the story came together, I guess it was a couple of months between the reporting and the writing, but so much of it was just the reading and the research and the rereading um, and trying to wrap my head around this case. So so that story sort of was, was sort of brought to me um, by someone in a position to sort of say, this is worth looking into. By contrast, the story that I did last year or that ultimately published last year, I started working on that one 
couple years before. This uh, is the Cleveland Fire story. This is the story. Cleveland Fire story. So the, the case of Angela Garcia was one that I'd never heard of. Nobody brought it to my attention. But what had happened was I had just published a big story about a different bad arson conviction. Um, and this one actually takes place in Nashville. Uh, mm. It was... It was my first sort of long form investigative piece for The Intercept, and it was a, a fire case. And that one just kind of captured my imagination. I got really interested in the subject matter. And then as soon as we published it, I had cut out a bunch of uh, sort of history that I found to be really interesting. I had like... The fire science. And... Yeah, the kind of fire science. So I had, I had interviewed Gerald Hurst, who is now deceased, actually. It's probably... I mean, I interviewed him less than a year before he died. And Gerald Hurst, I mean, people who are familiar with David Grant's, you know, iconic New Yorker piece about Cameron Todd Willingham would remember Gerald Hurst as an elderly uh, scientist who uh, has many patents and among them is the Mylar balloon. I mean, Gerald Hurst is like, you know, <laughs> on another level sort of uh, made his life, his life's work, frankly, was was sort of with the defense industry and, and inventions. Basically, sort of that's his way into fire and explosives and all of that. But then late in life, devoted himself to to sort of using his knowledge and his scientific expertise to help people uh, who had been wrongfully convicted in, in arson cases. And so I interviewed Gerald Hurst because he is the sort of ultimate expert and he's a, a great character. Uh, so I had I asked him, you know, why how did the, the science around this stuff get so bad or or. You know, scientists always knew sort of fire behavior, you know, or at least there was a sort of expertise there, whereas arson investigation as a field grew out of law enforcement. And to this day, I sort of not clear on how we kind of started using these arson indicators, so-called arson indicators that had no basis in science. And it seems very clear that part of it is an outgrowth of the insurance industry, how fire insurance sort of started and how insurers began investigating fires uh, with an eye towards arson. Obviously, there's a sort of implicit preference for finding, you know, arson in fire situations because that means the industry doesn't have to pay out, right? So, uh, yeah. so Gerald Hurst kind of went off on a, what was a bit of a tangent at the time um, during our interview, but he said, you have to go and look at these old insurance books and look at, you know, the insurance industry. And, and so I was sort of, long story short, I, I had a bunch of sort of stuff about that history in my piece and it wasn't directly relevant to the story and the story was already too long. So I cut it out, but then we published and I was still really interested in this and I started just doing some late night Google searches for, I wanted to see sort of if I could find situations where on the basis of suspicions of insurance fraud, somebody had been accused of an arson, which it happens a lot and sometimes it's absolutely true <laughs> that people do commit insurance fraud. But it was in the process of sort of just doing some loose Google searches that I found this strange <laughs> insurance website, some sort of a trade publication. And it was like the hall of shame, you know, worst, you know, it was like profiles of people who had committed insurance fraud. Uh, and it was very sort of in your face. And I'm kind of scanning it and I see this woman. Angela Garcia and says, this woman killed her two daughters in a fire just to collect, you know, I don't remember the exact amount, $30,000 in insurance money. Um, and something about the narrative just struck me as odd. I think it was partly that some of the red flag sort of false arson indicators popped up. Um, there might have been a line about her her behavior after the fire, her demeanor, which is always, you know, I mean, people's demeanor after a fire incident is always sort of scrutinized. I mean, this happens in all crimes, but in fires, you start to see the same thing over and over again. Like they weren't acting right. Yeah, They right. weren't panicked enough. It's in the story like she doesn't, she's not trying hard enough to rescue her kids. Yeah. And oftentimes 
no matter what you do, you're not acting right. You know, either you're too calm or you're too agitated. So you must be putting on a show. And so anyway, this, this small little profile of this woman, Angela Garcia, just kind of it caught my attention and I started doing some more Google searches and it had gotten a fair amount of press at the time of the trial because she was tried three times, mm-hmm, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is another red flag, a big one, um, mm-hmm. because oftentimes with these, when the state is willing to take a case to a third trial, there's something going on there. Um, and basically just the more I searched, the more I just sort of saw that there were probably problems with this conviction. Oh, another big one was um, (laughs) I started Googling the prosecutor, the judge, and sort of one by one, they all seemed to have ended up in prison somehow. The (laughs) the judge ended up under investigation for uh, on sort of ethics violations. Um, One of the prosecutors ended up in prison for paying off informants and, and on sort of drug charges. So it's like, that's obviously a red flag. Like, hey. <laughs> so, so this is, you know, because you've done this reporting in the past, these things sort of start piling up for you. Yeah. And it's, you know, what I, if I've learned anything about sort of these kinds of cases, it's, um, I mean, first of all, I don't want to jump to conclusions at all. Like, I, I don't actually know what happened in this situation, especially this first night that I'm looking into this or this, these subsequent Google searches. But the wrongful convictions are never about just one thing. It's never just like, oh, there was junk science or, oh, there was this one bad prosecutor. It's more often than not, it's a cumulative effect of a bunch of sort of factors. And so the more you see those individual factors pop up, the more signs are pointing to, you know, a case worth sort of exploring. Um, And so what I found so interesting about her case, this woman is a black woman, Puerto Rican, and the way her case is covered, it's just filled with all of these racist assumptions. Like, of course, she didn't want her kids. Like, she's a single mom uh, and she clearly wanted the insurance money. And and then the more you sort of dig into her actual life and her actual family, none of that was consistent with the truth. But you wouldn't know it from the sort of you know coverage that it got. Yeah, um, like neighbors saying, you know, maybe it was a crack house. And it's like she came from a wealthy family. Right. Yeah. It's not... It had no bearing on reality. Yeah. And so I just find that um, I've now taken a particular interest in, in fire cases because of the way that they are. There's just a lot about it that captures my imagination. But but one consistent thing that you find in, in wrongful conviction na- narratives is that, you know, the assumptions that are made are so immediate and so often about a person's living circumstance. And that's what happened with the Barry Jones case in Arizona. You know, this guy was living in a crappy trailer park on the south side of Tucson. You know, you look at the pictures of that trailer and it's, you know, it's pretty gross. But that doesn't make him a murderer, you know. Um, so that's just the sort of consistent thing that you see throughout all these kinds of stories. And and, and 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 the reason to cover them and the reason that I feel passionate about continuing to write these long form stories about people who are innocent to end up in these circumstances or potentially innocent, it's because this is this is how our criminal justice system operates. You know, we criminalize poor people, like entire communities, you know, are, are treated unfairly or criminalized without any sort of real evidence that they pose a threat. And, you know, so there's, it's kind of what it represents in a much broader way that keeps me coming back to these stories. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a brief word from our sponsor, tripping. If you've ever tried to book a vacation rental, you've been to many, many websites and wasted much, much time 
Tripping.com is actually the world's number one site for vacation rentals for a reason. It gets you what you're looking for fast, whether you're looking for a cabin to get away for the winter, a beach vacation in Hawaii, or maybe living like a local in Europe. Tripping.com can help you find the perfect place to stay, and it'll be flexible, have amenities that hotels don't, lots of bedrooms, backyards, hot tubs, free Wi-Fi, stock kitchens. Whatever you're looking for, they've got it. With one search, they'll let you filter, compare, and sort over 10 million available properties on trusted sites like VRBO, TripAdvisor, Booking.com, and more. I think those were some of the websites that I was browsing through. Uh, you won't have to wonder if you're getting the best deal, and you'll save an average of 18% per night booking your vacation with Tripping.com. So don't forget, if you want to save time and money while booking the perfect vacation rental for your next trip, head to Tripping.com slash Longform today. That's T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G dot com slash Longform. You'll be saving money on your vacation, saving your time, and helping support this show. Thank you, Tripping. Another thing that seemed to connect these two stories in particular, there were a couple of things for me. One was that in both cases, the victims were children. The people who died were children. And I, I was curious if that was by coincidence, because that seems, it's almost picking the hardest possible story to tell because when you have children who die, that's the worst situation. And then that's why the the local media that you sort of cite in the early parts of these cases gets into such a frenzy over get, these people getting convicted because it's so horrible. It's it's true. Yeah, I, I, I didn't do it on purpose. I do think, I think that there's something that you see when a child dies, especially in a sort of, in a fire situation. The Cameron Todd Willingham case had this too. It's so unthinkable to most people that a, an adult would survive a tragedy like that without saving their children. It's just, we can't accept it, you know? Um, and when a child dies anyway, and regardless of the circumstance, you know, people need to blame someone. We have this, this need, you know, the, the sort of instinct to punish is, is that much greater because it's it just, it's so unfathomable, the tragedy of it um, and the injustice of it. So the difference, of course, is that in Angela's case, there is no evidence, I mean, that she actually killed her children, really. In Barry Jones's case, this four-year-old girl was absolutely abused. It's clear that her mother was was abusive to her siblings. Um, I don't know the details of how abusive she was to to Rachel, the little girl. Somebody inflicted a blow to her abdomen that caused her death. The problem is that the investigation was so useless, and, and the investigation was led by tunnel vision from the very start that nobody bothered to sort of figure that out from the start, you know. And right now, I'm frankly, I'm grappling with this this problem in a follow-up piece after having attended the evidentiary hearing in, in Barry Jones's case, you know, the medical theory of this crime has completely fallen apart. And the problem is that you can't go back now and figure out sort of when this little girl first started showing the symptoms that pointed to the fact that she had this deadly um, condition unfolding within her, you know. And so I have struggled with that one because I... I I want to know what happened. You know, I very much want to know what happened and I very much want to know who did this. But we're never going to it's impossible to know the truth, actually, because um, it's just so long ago and the proper evidence wasn't collected at the time. The proper evidence wasn't collected at the time. Um, and yeah, it would it would mean having to sort of recreate the circumstances where she was living and talk to all those neighbors and all the people, you know, to, basically to sort of retroactively do the police work that wasn't done. 
So, I mean, there's theories. There's lots of theories. I have my own ideas, which I wasn't about to sort of speculate about in the piece. And I know the investigator in the case, the defense investigator who works with Barry Jones, has his own ideas. But that's the frustration is is the not knowing, you know. Um, there's I don't know. It's like this void that's been hard to sort of know how to address. Well, that's I mean, that's part of the thing is that it, yeah. to take on one of these cases, you're, you're like one of the lawyers involved trying to trying to pull apart all of these details from a decade ago or longer. And it seems so you can get so lost in them and then like pulling them together into the story seems like a real art because there's there's more than you could possibly really explain. Yeah. Yeah. And so the problem, I mean, currently I'm trying to distill, you know, I don't know, a week and a half of testimony into like a a manageable follow up feature length piece. And it means summarizing these really complicated sort of medical explanations in a way that's accessible and that where you don't get lost in the weeds and right. lose the reader. And that's it's just so time consuming. I mean, the other day I spent, you know, it was the end of the day and I was like, I think I just wrote like three lines. I think I just like barely <laughs> wrote a paragraph because I was looking for diagrams. I'm trying to understand this particular area of the abdominal cavity. And, and it's like, you know, in the transcript, I can't, you know, some of the exhibits are sort of closed off to the to the courtroom. And so it's like they're describing something that I can't see. I'm a very visual learner. So I know the days that you're talking about. I've experienced those myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the other thing that I feel like connects these stories and I wanted to ask about was there's a way in which when you do one of these innocent stories and they kind of like unfold like a horror story to me when I'm reading them, they're just like, oh, at first it's an arson and that's the worst possible thing has happened. Two children have died in a house fire. And then slowly it's sort of like, oh no, it's the woman did it. And then there's another turn where it's like, oh no, she didn't do it. She's being railroaded for this. And that seems to me like doubly devastating. And that made me wonder in terms of seeing these types of stories repeatedly and getting so close to them, does that affect you personally? Do you feel like, I don't know if I could do one of these again, or I know lawyers kind of end up shutting that off a lot of times if they're defense lawyers in these situations. So I'm just curious, what's your sort of personal interaction with the story like this? I mean, it's impossible to, to working on a story of, of this kind, I definitely, you know, you live with the story in your head for a long time. But in the moment, you know, it's, I enjoy the work <laughs> and and you're proximate to so much trauma and sort of violence and you know all these things that are horrifying. It's usually not until sort of after the fact that it sort of catches up with me in some way. Mm. Um, for example, this is actually a different kind of reporting, but I remember being caught off guard after attending the sentencing hearing for Dylan Roof uh, in Charleston, right? Very different kind of story to what I usually work on. Um, but I covered the death penalty a lot and I felt like I needed to be there, right? So I was there and a lot of other journalists have been there throughout the duration of the trial. I can't imagine what that must have been like because for me, sentencing hearings are always going to be difficult, but seeing you know, the the loved ones and relatives of the nine victims go up and, and describe and confront Dylan Roof with, with their pain and their trauma was exhausting. I mean, it was exhausting at the time, but I would leave court and try to write it down, you know, and sort of that's your way of processing it. It was really only a year later, I think, that on the sort of anniversary of the the shooting, the massacre itself, uh, that it sort of popped up on my feed as a reminder. And seeing um, seeing those names and faces again, I mean, I, I 
it made me cry like immediately, you know, and it was like I I think I sometimes we all compartmentalize sort of the stuff that we, you know, sort of cover and do and work on. Um, but I think that it takes a while to sort of manifest. It manifests in kind of weird, unexpected ways. And I think that's that's true of sort of trauma. Uh, and this is a sort of secondary, you know, this is it affects you. I just think that the ways in which it does aren't necessarily in the course of doing the work, you know, and I think that that's often true with with these stories that, you know, frankly, I take more time. I mean, the Charleston reporting happened very quickly. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was there. I saw it. I, I tried to I don't write quickly. I'm not a quick writer. Uh, I, I just tend to take a long time. But yeah, these cases, I mean, I definitely am invested in the outcomes. And I was very um, with the Barry Jones reporting. I think also once you've you have kids in your life in any way, uh, I've thought a lot about Rachel Gray, the four year old girl. And I went to to find the the place where she's buried and I spent some time there. And uh, and I think that that was good because it was a way to sort of connect with the reality of what was happening. This isn't just a story. Mm-hmm. This is this is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Well, you, you mentioned in there that you're invested in the outcome of these cases. And I've seen in a couple of places I saw your work described as quote unquote advocacy journalism. And I wanted to first know, is that a way you self describe it? Or is that a label other people put on it? I don't know. I, I guess I wouldn't shy away from that label. I think that that's fine. You know, I t- well, how, how would you define what does that mean to you? Well, I think that probably the times that I write about the death penalty a lot. I have also I mean, I come to that issue from a background of activism. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of fell in with anti-death penalty people in college. And it was the best education I could have ever hoped to have in terms of that issue, because it was really through those circles that I got to know people directly affected by that issue. You know, not just exonerees, but family members of people on death row. And those are the people who often so, so invisible in so much storytelling or so so much sort of coverage of that particular issue, um, especially kids of people facing execution. Um, it's almost like they don't exist. And I, my form of advocacy against the death penalty, frankly, has always been to sort of tell those stories that other people aren't, aren't seeing um, and to humanize the people, not just the people facing execution, but sort of everyone around them. And when I went to Arkansas last year, just again, by being there, I met the daughter of a man who was executed. Um, this man committed horrible crimes. I mean, this was not an innocence case. This is a horrible, this is the guy that, you know, you, that represents sort of this idea that we have about, you know, who's on death row, like the worst of the worst kind of thing. But he still has a daughter and she's got an extraordinary story of how she he had put her up for adoption when she was little. And yeah, she, this story was that story was amazing. Yeah. Her name is Gina Grimm and she discovered her dad was on death row and facing execution. And frankly, I never would have met her had it not been for the activist community that was out there in Arkansas that helped bring her to Little Rock and and took her down to to the prison, um, both for her last visit with her dad and also just to be there outside the execution. And she she didn't talk to any other press. She talked to me. It was actually totally crazy. We happened to be staying at the same Holiday Inn right across from one another. So we actually encountered each other before... (laughs) I had ri- I found her on Facebook and I'd written her a message asking to interview her, but I didn't make the connection until I was struggling with my door, my hotel room door, and this this nice woman <laughs> comes up and she's just like, oh, here, I was in this room before and I asked for a different room because the door was kind of stuck and it wasn't where And the next time I saw her was outside the prison. I was like, oh, <laughs> that's you, oh, you know, wow. and, and she talked to me and um, yeah, she had an extraordinary, painful, can't make it up kind of story to share. And I ended up spending... That whole evening with her, it was just 
being proximate to her. But again, she wouldn't have made it down there had it not been for activists who who took the time and, you know, care. So let's talk a little bit about how you you got into activism a little bit, anti-death penalty activism, you said when you were in college, and then what caused your transition into journalism or how did you transition into journalism from there? Yeah, I think, well, I always knew I wanted to write. Like that was kind of, I wanted to be a journalist. I, I, I didn't really have an issue that I that really animated me or that I felt passionate about, which is strange to think about now. But I, it was, so in my senior year of college at Barnard, when that was going into my senior year, I guess. So 9-11 happened when I was at Barnard and it was this destabilizing trauma for all of us. You know, I was here in the city, um, obviously uptown, so far away from it. But I remember that um, at that point, I sort of was political in the sense that I paid attention. I was sort of horrified by by the election of George W. Bush. I, I had a sort of politics about me, but it was really only in the immediate wake of 9-11 that I sort of woke up and became horrified at what we were about to do with the sort of bombing of Afghanistan, the sort of like earliest days of, you know, what would become the war on terror started to really scare me. And I, um, it's hard to connect that to where I sort of ended up. And yet it's very clear to me in, in, in the immediate days after 9-11, um, we were so disoriented and I didn't know what to do with myself. And we were so frightened. And I remember there was a, an event that was being, sponsored, co-sponsored by this group on campus called the Campaign to End the Death Penalty. And it was basically the great abolitionist nun, Sister Helen Prejean, was coming to campus and she didn't cancel her trip, which was kind of amazing to me. I think she was in New Jersey or something and nobody was coming to New York in those days. You know, it was kind of everything was shut down. And Sister Helen came and gave a lecture that the specifics of which I do not really recall, but she said certain things that resonated so deeply at the time and that were, I think, so life-affirming in a way that I desperately needed it in that moment um, because she addressed, obviously, the terrorist attack. And I think there was sort of something of a warning about the sort of like the impulse for vengeance, the impulse to retaliate, which is what the death penalty represents, right? Mm -hmm. Vengeance. And at one point, she also said that every person is a universe. You know, she said something like that. And that includes people who are facing execution. That includes people on death row. And that kind of idea that every person is a universe with people around them, um, just kind of something about it struck me as um, it just moved me. And I went up to the sort of table of activists who were sort of there passing out literature. And I was like, I, you know, I want to see what this is about. I want to go to your next meeting. And very quickly from there, <laughs> I just sort of I knew that those were the kinds of stories that I wanted to tell. I, um, so how did you get a foothold in journalism? So it actually took a while. I didn't, I graduated college in 2002 and was just sort of desperate to get back to New York. I went back home to Maryland, which is where my family is, and was like, my, my primary objective was just getting back to New York. I love New York. And uh, so I took the first job I could find, and that was a editorial assistant at a publishing house, an academic publishing house. Like, And actually, I had applied for a sort of liberal arts section of this publishing house, but instead was placed in a science and engineering uh, area, which was, it, it became quickly clear that like, it didn't matter that I wasn't a scientist and I had no training at all. What I was essentially doing was managing authors a lot and, uh, you know, chasing that after them with author questionnaires and trying to help with the marketing. And, and so it kind of sucked uh, because it wasn't what I wanted to be doing, but it was an early good lesson in kind of the publishing industry and kind of how it operates. Um, the pay was terrible, but it got me, you know, it got me back to New York, basically. Um, and then from there, I went to work at a publication called Current Biography, which was 
kind of like a who's who compendium of sort of notable people uh, on the world stage. And so I was writing these short little biographies, sort of like just very dry, interesting subject matter because they're interesting people. Um, so it was a writing gig. But I, I guess I wasn't really aggressively seeking out a journalism position until right around the time. Well, I know exactly right around the time. By then, I was reading The Nation magazine. I was reading everything online. I was following the Iraq war. I was really horrified by Abu Ghraib, I remember specifically. And then it was time for Bush's, you know, the re-election. And the morning after the election, I remember being completely caught off guard and horrified that we were going to have another four years of Bush. And I was like, I can't. I need to be at a place that's sort of fighting back. I need to be somewhere where, you know, people are I felt like I was not doing enough uh, individually. And so I applied for the nation's internship. Uh, the nation, I knew that there was an internship I could do. But at the time, I mean, I was basically 25. It felt like madness to be living in New York and going from a paid position where I was actually writing to being an unpaid intern. Uh, <laughs> from a low paid publishing position into a zero. Yeah, zero, yeah. Which has since changed, you know, and the whole, it's kind of wonderful that it's, you know, it, that's not the choice that necessarily people have to make anymore. But uh, I was a bit, when I think back now, it's like very much the kind of stupid thing I would do, like one would do in their 20s when they're not really thinking that far ahead. Um, but it worked. Though. It worked out it well. Paid it off. Was, yeah, it was a good gamble. Um, and I will say, I mean, I guess it's not that I had not produced any journalism. The journalism to that point that I had produced was in activist newsletters. Um, mm. We had a publication called The New Abolitionist, and I was writing stories about cases and um but very much with the sort of movement at the center of it. And so that's kind of the origins of my sort of advocacy journalism. It's very, very directly advocacy journalism. Right. Um, and I guess in a sense, I do sort of what feels like more traditional journalism now. But, you know, I've never pretended not to have a point of view. I've written sort of more opinion kinds of pieces uh, very much against the death penalty. Uh, and that's just kind of where I stand on that issue. Um, so... The Intercept is fortunately a place that was founded on the idea that, you know, objectivity is kind of a false ideal and all of that. So I'm very much at home there. It's, yeah, it's, it's a good know, place to land yeah, from yeah. that perspective. So yeah. you went from the nation to alternate. I looked, I was like, I'm going to read your alternate stuff. And you wrote an ungodly number of stories while you were at alternate. Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> yes, uh, which was part of the problem. Uh, you know, <laughs> like some of those stories I think were, are probably fine. And I know that there are a few stories that I, I can probably safely say I'm I'm still proud of, um, but so much that I I just revisited this morning, just kind of glanced at what my author page at Alternate might look like now, and there are so many stories I have no recollection of he having even produced, and that's because the perverse nature of not just Alternate at the time, but sort of the internet at that time was just like you know there were so many new sites cropping up where people were just blogging, you know, you're just like feeding the beast, you know, it's just content, and uh, my position there wasn't as a staff writer. I was an editor in charge of two massive sections, one of which was <laughs> rights and liberties, and the other was world. <laughs> so it's like rights and liberties and the world. It was previously the war in Iraq section, but then I think it became world. Mm. So in addition to sort of curating those what would be called verticals, I guess now, and finding content from wherever I could get it and editing, ostensibly editing original stories by other people, then I was expected to produce all these other stories, you know, of my own. Um, and so it was a crazy way to try to work. It didn't necessarily produce, you know, yield the best results in terms of journalism, but I was so committed to trying to do reporting, original reporting where I could. Um, but it was not a place where that was necessarily encouraged. It was a place where you were just, just, just supposed to be constantly churning out 
stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that sounds very mid-2000s to late aughts uh, internet style. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was untenable. And I mean, and, you know, alternate was an untenable place to be anyway. Uh, it's been an interesting sort of era revisiting that. Um, not only is there so much that I don't remember in terms of the work I was doing, but so much I had sort of forgotten or blocked out about what it was like to work there under yeah. Don Hazen, you know? I mean... So this has come out in the news recently. BuzzFeed did this piece about sexual harassment at Alternet and accusations against... Was he the founder, publisher? Was he was his? the... You know, I, I can't say that I'm that familiar with the origin story of Alternet, but yeah, he was the head of... It was a personal... He was the boss. Yeah, he was the boss. Uh, he ostensibly had a board. He was not accountable to anyone, really. And so that sort of is how he, he ran that place. And um, at the time that I, that opportunity presented itself, I was very... I knew that it was a really good chance to just, you know, write a lot and mm -hmm. to gather clips. But, you know, I knew enough about that place to know that it was probably not somewhere I could be forever, uh, but that it would be a good opportunity while it lasted. And um, I was working in New York and Alternate was in San Francisco. And so, you know, Don was a guy with, you know, the kind of image he projected was kind of a, you know, he's kind of a hippie, like an old hippie, you know, like he comes from the sort of like Tom Hayden era kind of uh Bay Area, very, you know, he just sort of seemed kind of cool. And so in his being kind of cool, it's like, oh, he could kind of say whatever he wanted because he's kind of, you know, he's down with the cause. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the problems with alternate for me, I can't say that I got sexually harassed by Don in the way that so many of my friends and, and colleagues definitely did in a more sort of day-to-day -day way, especially like in San Francisco, I was out of the office. But what I came to realize very quickly was that he just kind of would hire up um, very eager you know, mostly young women, and then just kind of treat them like shit. I mean, like in ways that were both sort of overtly misogynistic and then sort of more just kind of manipulative and basically constantly send us the message that whatever we were doing, it wasn't enough and it wasn't right. And, you know, this constant shifting of expectations and these constant sort of round the clock emails where he was he would sort of hector you for not being responsive enough to an email, but in a very weird sort of personal way. Um, mm -hmm. And it's hard to sort of quantify that. It's hard to explain why that could be so corrosive, but it was. You know, it was the sort of like need to be constantly producing and then the constant message that we were doing a shitty job. And then the kind of, you know, expectation that when I would go out to San Francisco, you know, there was always an expectation that I had to kind of hang out with him, you know, go to a function with him. Once it was a baseball game where I had to hang out with his friends at an apartment where everyone was getting stoned and then we had to go to the baseball game and I remember sitting there like what is how why am I sitting here with my boss you know and his weird friends when I want to just be hanging out with my coworkers or just at my hotel you know it was just a very weird yeah and on that particular night I actually left I didn't even really know where I was I was at the stadium and I was like you know what baseball games are long I was just like I'm, I'm kind of tired you know I, I just I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go and he's like oh well, I'll take you home and I said no 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 I'll just walk and I walked back to the hotel from the stadium which is I can't say that it's because I felt you know really uncomfortable or threatened or like whatever it was just weird you mm -hmm. know it was weird but we all kind of it was the sort of like cost of doing business you know it was kind of like in order to get your foot into the journalism door at that time you had to kind of work in this environment and um but then like after a while it just became this like uh, I don't know, crushingly depressing place to be where you couldn't really, um, 
there was no downtime, you know, and and Don had the capacity to sort of send me an email that would throw me into a complete panic because it was like, oh, I wasn't living up to some, you know, expectation or other. Um, the thing that didn't make it into the BuzzFeed piece and the thing that, that I still to this day sort of find enraging about that place and that's kind of emblematic of the kind of uh, culture at Alternate in a way that one wouldn't necessarily expect was sort of late in my time there. My My partner at the time, he had a daughter who came to live with us somewhat unexpectedly and there's a lot more to that story, but she basically came and we suddenly had to sort of scramble to kind of figure out how to reconfigure our life to accommodate, you know, the Just, fact that we were going to be parents, mm-hmm. like, you know. And I remember trying to approach Don along with my immediate supervisor, Jan, at the time and uh, and explain to him, it's like, some I've got this thing going on in my personal life. It's going to impact my schedule, you mm-hmm. know, and I, I just wanted a kind of discreet conversation where I could kind of explain that and, and just get a little bit of consideration for that. And um and the response, the response from them was on my next visit to San Francisco, they kind of sat me down in a meeting where basically Don just kind of told me in no uncertain terms that this new sort of reality for me was like really inconvenient, kind of just did not lend itself to the kind of, you know, the needs of the company, which was that we had to be on call all the time. We had to be constantly producing. And it's not that I was suddenly working less or that I wasn't. I mean, if anything, I was like just killing myself in order to just continue to sort of produce the kind of work that we were expected to produce. It's that now I had this, I was perceived to be less serious. I was perceived to be someone who at six o'clock was, as I was told at one point, you know, punching out, you know, which was just totally not true. Uh, But it was kind of like, well, now you're parenting. And that clearly says something about where your priorities lie. And it was, um, I find it more bewildering now being older and, and having, you know, a bit of perspective at the time, it really felt like, it wasn't acceptable and it felt deeply unfair, but I don't think I fully grasped just how messed up it was and just what a hostile work environment that creates for any working person, you know, but especially as a woman, you know, uh, basically being told you're, you're not, you know, this isn't going to work out. Uh, and, I, and essentially I was kind of pushed out of that place. I didn't really leave. Uh, I mean, I sort of left of my own volition, but they just kind of made it so miserable to be there that I just kind of had to, had to get out. Well, well sadly, I feel like many people listening to this from stories that I've heard and people close to me will uh, that will resonate with them even in workplaces that aren't horrible for other reasons. Yeah. But that exact same scenario yeah. plays out when a, a child comes into their life for whatever reason. Um, well, I'm curious about the experience of being on the other end of the reporting and sort of why you decided to go on the record for the BuzzFeed story and a little bit about that. I'm just always interested when a reporter ends up on the other end of the news. Like, how did you experience that? You know, it's like deeply weird, you know, even being interviewed right now is like weird. It's like, I ask the questions, like you don't ask me, I ask you. (laughs) I have to say, when the Me Too stuff started and I, uh, you know, I saw the shitty media men list and all of that, I didn't feel as personally invested in it until I realized that Don wasn't being discussed in in that way. And I was... You just assumed... Someone will take care of this. Or like, uh, yeah. this is on someone's radar. Yeah, it had to be, right? Because Don had been so horrible to so many women. And it was this big open secret. On the other hand, Alternate now especially is, is pretty marginal. He's not a household name at all. Alternate, like, you know, on the left, I mean, Alternate was pretty well known and sort of, you know, 10 years ago. I think it's less, it doesn't resonate in the same way. There's a lot of newer things that have come so anyway, I, I guess it wasn't entirely surprising he wasn't a part of it, but I found it deeply frustrating <laughs> because to me, he was so clearly just the kind of figure who I felt should be now 
confronting accountability in this moment. And so I think it was soon after the piece about Ham Fish came out or maybe around the same time. And I worked for Ham Fish. I worked at the Institute. But I remember, you know, for me personally anyway, and that's not to, to take away anything that anyone else experienced working at the Institute, you know, that did not represent the kind of toxic environment that I experienced at Alternate. This is the Nation Institute. This is the Nation Institute, mm-hmm. yeah, where Hamilton Fish was sort of the head of, of things. And he was, there was a piece about him that sort of, you know, exposed some of his behavior. And I remember reading that and it's like, okay, I, I worked for him. For me, it felt completely bizarre that there wouldn't be, you know, that that would happen without Don Hazen receiving that treatment or, you know, being exposed in his own right. And so at some point, Cora Lewis, who wrote the BuzzFeed piece, wrote to me saying, hey, I'm working on a story about sort of sexual harassment, whatever, on the left. And I was wondering if if you would want to speak to me. But she didn't say what her focus was. And so I wrote Mm. back, I'm like, just out of curiosity, are you looking at anyone in particular? And she said, yeah, you know, two people but one of them was Don Hazen. And it was instantaneous. I was just like, absolutely, I will talk to you. Uh, but at the time, I felt like, you know, the people with, with the real the real dirt, you know, the stuff that any journalist would be looking for were not, it wasn't me, it was my friends. Like, and they had not, I hadn't even discussed it with them, whether they'd be interested in coming forward with their own story. Um, so I think I was one of the first people that spoke to Cora basically for an hour on background. I said, I'll tell you sort of my experience um, mm-hmm. and what you should be looking for. And then you can come back around and, you know, I can give you sort of on the record stuff. So for me, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't remotely a struggle. I didn't feel like I was putting myself out there. I didn't actually tell her the story I just told you because mm. I hadn't had enough time to think about it. I hadn't even since I talked to her, I've gone back and reread old emails and sort of realized uh, just how much anger I still have or had about my years there and how much of that I've been carrying around for all this time. At the time, I was like, well, I'm not the one to talk to, but but yes, definitely pursue this, you know. And so, but as I've corresponded with, you know, my friends who also worked at Alternet and a lot of the women who were quoted or, or who were on background for that story, I mean, a lot of us realized that there's this very similar tendency, no matter what we experience, to be like, well, I never got the worst of it. Like, so-and-so got it much worse, you know. Mm-hmm. And there are, you know, degrees to this stuff. But when I first got to New York this month, we all had a dinner where we all got together, a, a, a big group of us, like all of these women who had sort of been emailing back and forth and kind of talking about how, how, you know, it's just sort of supporting each other through the process of this story that was in the works. Um, just to sort of see us all gathered in the same place and to know we are there for the same reason made this thing that has felt, I think, kind of abstract and hard to measure. It made it very real. It was just like, wow, this really was this workplace where we just... We were really mistreated and we're pissed about it and we're not traumatized. I want to be very clear. I mean, it's been very I've gotten a lot of people who contacted me and my friends being like, oh, that was really brave of you to come forward. That was really brave. And I don't feel particularly brave at all. I mean, I feel like I got something off my chest that I didn't even realize how badly I wanted to get off my chest. Um, Mm. But I also feel like those days are so far behind me um, and we're not traumatized. Like none of us are traumatized by it. But it was like an incredible waste of time. <laughs> you know, it was like the amount of energy we expended on his bullshit. And especially when I when I reread some of the emails that I wrote in defense of myself and my work, because I felt like I needed to be constantly defending myself and my work. And I was accused of being lazy and I was accused of not delivering. I was like, oh, my God, I wrote this like meticulously researched 2,500 word email to my boss explaining that I'm not lazy and here's all the evidence, you know? And I'm like, all the time that I spent on that could have been, I could have been reporting. I could have been, you know. It's hard enough to be a young journalist 
I mean, that's exactly the, in all of these stories, the people that are driven out of the profession because they encounter this and it's just one thing too many. Yeah. It's been sobering to realize not only just sort of that I've got I had some untapped rage about it, which I think we channeled in a good way. I think, you know, I feel good about that. Um, but to realize like how much sort of double duty so many of us were doing just in managing, you know, this boss and kind of ourselves and how, how exhausting that all was. Um, and and that's kind of how the Me Too movement, how I've experienced it, frankly, and a lot of my friends, too. It's like each new sort of story um, brings a lot of this back up and it, it can have a very derailing effect. I mean, I was I was in Ohio covering this execution a few months ago when um can't remember which sort of new revelation it was. Um, but I was in my hotel room and I was very focused and I was trying to it just sort of pissed me off all over again to sort of see now in my Twitter feed this new person. Um it might have been Al Franken, um, because mm. the ones that pissed me off the most are the ones on the left, yeah, you know, right. the ones closest and the ones that because that's what you know, Don was this progressive guy who championed women. You know, he was like this feminist. He described himself as a feminist. He fundraised on the idea that he was, you know, developing the talent of, you know, women journalists. And it was so ironic. Uh, and so I think those had the capacity to piss me off in a way that others maybe haven't. All of which is to say, you know, revisiting all of this has been a lot of emotional sort of work. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, it sort of catches up to me when I don't necessarily expect it to. And and all told, I think it's been a great thing. You know, I'm really, I'm really, really happy that, you know, a woman coming up in journalism now on the left won't necessarily have to grapple with a guy like Don Hayes. And it doesn't mean she won't, uh, but, but that that women are demanding something better and demanding not to have to go through this bullshit in order to kind of get into this industry is like a very heartening thing. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there's so much discussion around what the perpetrators of various levels of behavior, like quote unquote, deserve. And... I mean, first of all, do you have an opinion? I mean, it's not really the victim's obligation, I mean, to decide what a person deserves. But it's interesting that that's so much a part of the conversation as opposed to what you're talking about, which is sort of the people who are freed from suffering from that behavior. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Because to me, it's like the point isn't what Don deserves. He's already, I mean, he had his career. You know, he had his, I mean, I don't need to... And <laughs> I'm anti-death penalty. I don't. I, I. I don't. I don't lead with you know from a place of you know sort of punishment and vengeance. I. I don't. That's not. What's very clear to me is that none of us who worked at Alternate and dealt with his behavior deserved that treatment. You right. know, that's what's so clear. It's like we just we didn't deserve this shit. So, and, and so that's kind of where I keep returning. Don. I mean, I think you know he's no longer at the head of Alternate. I don't know what Alternate's future is. That's a site that had it not burned through so much talent could have been something much better than it is today. That's very clear to me. Um, That's another sort of consequence of all this. Yeah. So I just think that, yeah, a younger generation of, of women journalists deserve better than that. Well, that kind of takes me back to, to your work now for The Intercept because you write so much about justice and the way that justice is either perverted or never achieved, or in some cases achieved. But it kind of takes me back to this question I asked a form of before, which is when you spend your life looking into those issues, it seems so depressing to me. And I'm wondering, what's your level of experiencing progress when it comes to the broader issues of injustice and incarceration that you, you focus on? Like, how do you perceive whether progress is ever made? Well. On the issue of the death penalty, I, I feel like progress has been made in very clear ways. I mean, every year there are fewer new death sentences. 
even in, you know, the, the states that represent, you know, the kind of, I mean, Texas, you know, you see this trend in, in Texas and Harris County, uh, you know, the numbers don't lie. They're showing that fewer and fewer death sentences are being handed down. Fewer executions are, are being carried out. So in a kind of like long trend kind of way, that's progress, right? I think that uh, the focus on innocence has done a lot to move that trend forward. You know, I think people know more about the fact of wrongful convictions than they ever have. You know, that the Innocence Project is, you know, that whole movement has has done a lot of good in terms of raising consciousness around that issue. The sort of flip side of that to me is that I don't think we're becoming less punitive. I think that the forms of punishment that we pursue just take different shapes. And so what has happened throughout the country really is as death sentences seem to be on their way out. Life without parole, which is a different form of kind of permanent sentencing, has really skyrocketed. And for anyone who cares about mass incarceration, that is going to create huge, it already has created huge um, problems. I mean, it kind of, we haven't moved away from the idea of kind of permanent punishment, um, or, or rather, we continue to reject the idea that people are more than the worst thing that they ever did. You know, we've just decided that rather than killing them, maybe we're going to just let them die in prison. And that we see that's not just in murder cases, that's in all sorts of cases. And so the, the kind of normalization and embrace of life without parole is not progress. I think that that's, you know, the opposite. And um, I think. <laughs> well, that seems like it's also a journalistic challenge because that's a harder, in some ways, a harder story to tell. Like you have a story about you know, someone who was sent to prison for life for like stealing $14 out of someone's house. And it was, to you know, it was for a drug fix and finding ways to tell that story seems even more difficult than death penalty, which is so extreme that everyone knows the stakes are high. Yeah. And the, the sort of easy stories are the ones where it's like on its face. Well, that's screwed up. You know, there's the ACLU some years ago did a report about uh, life without parole sentences for nonviolent crimes. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the easy one. Right. That's like, well, no one should that's crazy. You know, you're serving the same sentence as like triple murderers. I mean, that's that, that's a harder lift. Um, but I think for for the stories to have any kind of deeper transformational value is to be able to convince someone that maybe this person killed somebody. But that doesn't mean that they should forfeit the entire rest of their life, you know, uh, as a human being and that we have to, you know, I think that logic needs to be dismantled and people need to kind of be able to think beyond the kind of immediate horror of a given crime and the immediate circumstances and the sort of and, and those are the hard stories, harder stories to tell. Um, and, and for me, it's always, you know, people change, you know, this idea that people change. We're so resistant to that um, when a person has done something, you know, terrible. Uh, and and so showing the ways in which people change has become a, like a fundamental part of what I want to do, you know, and that's not just people who are caught up in the system themselves, but people who change their minds, you know, about the system. Uh, I don't know if you remember, Glenn Ford was a man who was exonerated from Louisiana's death row and then died shortly thereafter of mm -hmm. cancer. And the prosecutor in his case, this guy, Marty Stroud, wrote this anguished sort of mea culpa uh, in a paper down there where he described how as a young prosecutor he had sent this innocent black man to death row and that he didn't care about justice he just wanted to win you know he describes in very stark terms like from a place now of sort of disgust he's disgusted that this was the mindset that he was in at the time he was arrogant he was all these things he desperately regrets uh, what he did his role in in helping um, send this guy to death row and that piece circulated 
I got it via email. It was on Twitter. It was everywhere. People were like, this is amazing. This is such an amazing, you know, because we're not used to hearing people admit to that. You know, Mm -hmm. we're not used to prosecutors doing that. Um, And so I wrote a piece in which I kind of took that and and posed the question, you know, what if we... (laughs) What if we afforded the same potential for transformation to people who commit crimes? Like, what if we, you know, this guy clearly changed. This guy, you know, doesn't like the person that he was, you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, (laughs) What about all of the people now languishing in prison, whether on death row or or serving life without parole, who could say the exact same thing? Say, I don't like the person that I was when I committed this crime. I'm different now. Like, do we afford that same humanity, like basic humanity to the people behind the bars? Um, because according to our sort of sentencing laws and our you know, the prisons that are filled to the brim, we don't, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, what they might do or how they might change, you know, mm-hmm. sort of under the eyes of the law, uh, they're done. And, and so I think about that a lot. And that's kind of the place where my advocacy, I guess, has taken me. So I also wanted to ask you uh, about... I understand you're married to a journalist, yeah. which I am also married to a journalist. <laughs> so I'm always fascinated with the uh, all-in on media and journalism yeah. uh, couples. Yeah. And you know, I know he covers a lot of not the exact same issues, but you know, he we can say his name. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. Bradley Balco yeah. is that I'm pronouncing it. I was yeah, I never knew how to pronounce. That's right. Um, writes for the Post. Mm-hmm. Also covers criminal justice and areas around that. Is that totally complementary? Or would you sort of get at odds ever in terms of wanting to cover a story or covering a story? I can't say that we get at odds. I mean, there are so many stories out there, you know, yeah. and we're we're talking shop basically constantly. And so there's absolutely no tension really between like, it's like sometimes someone will pass something along. I, I mean, I actually, this podcast that we actually didn't, didn't discuss, but <laughs> I'm working on a podcast right now. It's oh, yeah. a wrongful conviction sort of narrative out of South Georgia. That actually came to me through Radley because he had been contacted by this lawyer who knew him from a, a previous story. Um, mm. She basically was asking him, hey, would this be of interest to you? I, and she explicitly wanted to do a kind of radio project. Um, he was working on finishing his book. He's like, I'm in the middle of this thing. I, I can't take it on. But, you know, who might be able to uh, is, you know, I guess his fiance at the time, whatever I was. Uh, and so he passed it to me. And um, and that's how I ended up with that. So, oh, wow. so sometimes it works out that way. And actually, I've done the same. This lawyer I met in Little Rock had um, sometimes I kick myself for turning this down and giving it to Radley <laughs> because it's going to be such a crazy, terrible story. And it's 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 but but it's about policing. It's about sort of racist policing in Little Rock. Um, and Radley's working on it now. And so. It's like, you know what, like, as enticing as this is, it's about policing. And Radley wrote a book about policing. This is his area. So it often works out that way. Um, that's, that's very generous in both directions, <laughs> I have to say. You know, sometimes I'm like, all right, don't tell me anymore about the Little Rock story because it's just going to frustrate me. Um, but no, there's there's more than enough horrible stuff for us to cover uh, without there being much overlap. I will say our sort of walking the dog conversations can be kind of weird, you know, from an outsider's (laughs) perspective. It's like we're talking about pathologists and autopsies, and now I'm obsessed with arson investigations. And so, you know, it's talk a lot about forensics and um, and that sort of thing. So, And the podcast is a deep dive into this one case. Yeah, the podcast is a deep dive into uh, the case of a man who was convicted of murder in a tiny town called Adel, Georgia. And it takes place, it's also a case that takes place in in the 90s. It goes back to 1998. 
it's not a, is he guilty or is he not? You know, mm-hmm. it's like the question of his guilt isn't actually at the heart of the story because there's actually pretty damning evidence that this murder was actually committed some by somebody else. Um, there's DNA evidence and we have a very good sense of who actually committed this murder. Um, but the question sort of throughout the, the story is, you know, why is this proof not enough for the state to revisit this conviction in any serious way? Um, and also it takes place at a time when in this small town, a series of other murders take place, um, one of which was solved, the other of which remains unsolved, and sort of tying them together are some of the same investigators and some of the same just kind of crappy work that led this, you know, almost certainly innocent guy to be facing a, a life in prison. He's, yeah, serving life without parole. So so it's sort of about institutional failure and, um, again, tunnel vision. It's definitely about race. So it'll probably be about six or seven parts but it's meant a lot of driving from Nashville down through Atlanta, down to South Georgia um, over the past couple of years. So. Well, Liliana, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Yeah, it's been fun. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thank you to Liliana for making time for this when she was in New York City. And as always, thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern, Angela Velez, and our sponsors, Luby, Tripping.com, and as always, MailChimp. We will see you next week. Hey, uh, one more thing. Remember Mubi? They're our sponsor this week. I love Mubi. Uh, Algorithms, the things that tell you what movies to watch, usually suck. You know what's better? A curated online cinema that streams exceptional films from around the globe, classics, documentaries. Each day they introduce a new hand-picked gem and you have a month to watch it. You can try it for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash longform. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash long form. You will be taking the terrible moment where you have to decide what to watch out of your life and supporting the show all at once. Thank you, Mubi. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.